You're listening to Arc Radio Podcast. Ya Sayyidi Ya Journey to Islam A series of autobiographical stories told by converts who have discovered Islam the Siratul Mustaqim Today's story is about Idris Taufik a former Catholic priest Now I I'm going to talk to you about the really all I have to say could be summed up in a few words it's to say that the sweet and the beautiful and the gentle message of Islam touched my heart and it continues to touch my heart each day and, and that that is the gist of what i'm going to say to you today on all this about he studied here and he studied there and he did this and did that the important thing is a simple man is just standing before you saying that almighty allah touches our hearts and we must respond to the way he touches us now to be i'll begin by just mentioning um, this book i i wrote the book because gardens of delight i wrote the book because my friend after i embraced this lab a lot of my friends in egypt um, english friends and they knew about islam what i knew all i knew about islam prior to becoming muslim was that muslims beat ladies they hit ladies and they chop your hands and they had guns and were violent and and one very nice people to know and so i i wrote the book simply to explain to ordinary people to english people to american people people in the west who don't talk much about religion to explain to them what islam is like so right right at the start just just allow me to read something i write here you've only to turn on a television set in any part of the western hemisphere to be very soon perfectly convinced that islam is the religion of terrorism muslims feel that after the horrifying events of september the 11th in the united states or the terrible bombings in madrid or london or sharm el-sheikh that there's not an explosion or a loud noise to be heard in any large city be it the result of a leaking gas pipe or a car exhaust backfiring and all eyes will look to islam as its cause they believe that the very name islamic has become associated in many people's minds with suicide bombs and suspicious characters intent on evil wearing the muslim veil far from being a symbol of modesty has become for many a symbol of the oppression of women of extreme religious bias Now where has this image come from that makes Islam seem so violent, so aggressive, so uncompromising in its dealings with others? Daily news coverage brings to our screens images of extreme violence from Iraq and Palestine. Arabs boarding any plane feel that they're looked upon with suspicious eyes, not only by airport security but by passengers too, fearing for their own safety. they could be carrying concealed weapons and yet 
When IRA violence was at its height in Northern Ireland in the 1970s and 80s, no one spoke about Roman Catholic terrorists. The Roman Catholic Church was not singled out for criticism. When the Basque separatist group ETA have carried out attacks in the Basque region of northern Spain, no one talks about Christian terrorists. So why Islam? So why Islam? Now, I used to be uh, a priest. Mo most of my life I, I was, belonged to a religious order. And in fact, it, um, as part of my training long, long ago, I spent some time in Trenent, near, near Edinburgh. And it, it, was a, it was a List D school. You, you have List D schools in Scotland for very naughty boys who've gone into trouble with the police. And they're taken to sort of residential custodial care. And, and a phrase I remember very much from Trenent with these very naughty boys. They, when you'd confront them, they'd always say, it was near me, Breer. It was near me. Well, in a sense, Muslims can put up their hand and they can say, it was near me. Because Muslims are chosen. It just happens to be that Muslims are the, are the flavor of the month. And they've been chosen by people whose agenda is to take spirituality and religion and faith from our society. And, and they use any means of doing it. And at the moment it's Islam, but really it's got nothing to do with Islam. It's to do with faith, people of faith. And, and it's, we, we'll say this much more later on. People of faith have so much more in common with each other than we can possibly imagine. And, and as Muslims, we should never, ever, ever feel threatened by the goodness we see in other people. Goodness is a threat to no one. And if our faith is strong, we can recognize goodness in any religion and in any people. And we should thank Almighty Allah, we should thank God that goodness is there because there are too many people in our world, there are too many people in our society who are not good and who seek to destroy goodness. So we'll mention more later on, but at the moment, Islam is the target. It, it used to be, at one stage in Britain, it was uh, Sikhs for not wearing crash helmets. They were picked on. Another time, it was Catholics. Um, different groups, different groups. When the media trade moves on from, from Islam, I don't know who will be next. But the agenda is, a, to my mind, it's a very clear agenda. And it's agenda to take faith away from our, from our lives. Now, um, I was a priest. And I want to say right at the start, it's very, very important that I say this, that whenever I speak about the church and about Christians, I speak with the greatest love and the greatest affection. These people, I lived with these people all my life. And I loved these people all of my life. So if anyone is expecting ever from me words of criticism against the church or against, critis, uh, or against Christians, they're not going to get it. They'll have to go somewhere else. Everything I say about the church, I say with love. They're my, they're my brothers and sisters that I've, I've grown up with. Let me tell you about Pope John Paul. Pope John Paul II, a giant, a giant of the 20th century, and a truly extraordinary man. In, in fact, so, he was so loved 
by Muslims in, in Italy that when he was dying uh, on Friday, Friday prayers, the, the Muslims in Rome offered prayers for his recovery. As the Pope lay dying in the uh, Gemelli Policlinico in Rome, the Muslims were praying for him. And that's because people all over the world recognized goodness. Not necessarily the message that was being preached. We can disagree amongst ourselves about the message. You believe this, we believe this. And that doesn't mean we're all saying we're all equal. Because when we say we're all equal, that, that means we're all equally unimportant. We say we believe this and we think you're wrong in believing what you believe. But we respect it and we can love you and, and, and we can honor each other. We can be friends, even though we think you're wrong. So we're not saying all religions are the same. Because if, if they're all the same, it, it's like, well, it's not like choosing, shall I paint my door red or yellow or blue? What religion shall I pick? It's more important than that. It's much more important than that. So, John, the first time I encountered the great Pope John Paul II was, um, you, you know how in, in St. Peter's Basilica, whenever the Pope appears on the balcony of St. Peter's to give a blessing, you, you know the, the picture you see. And imagine this is where he's standing, okay, like this. And behind there are windows all across the front of St. Peter's. Well, behind those windows, there's a room, a long room. And every first Saturday of the month, the, the Pope, even this new Pope, uh, meets uh, with members of, the, of, of his church and he leads them in saying the rosary. The rosary is like sipa, prayers, prayer beads. And, and the Catholics gather pray to Mary, the mother of Jesus, that, that, that she would pray for them. So I, I was a, a seminarian studying to be a priest. And, I wanted to meet the Pope. I wanted to see the Pope. So I got there very early to the bronze doors of St. Peter's, waited to get a good view. I waited all afternoon with nuns and all manner of other people. And the doors opened and we rushed in like a pop concert. We rushed in to get, and, and the hall is a, it's a long hall like this with, a, with an aisle down the middle and a little bit narrow, narrower with the number of seats. So I stood myself on the aisle waiting for the Pope to come by. So he came in on that side and all the people were grabbing his hand and I'm from Timbuktu and I'm from Beijing and I'm from everywhere. And he went and led the service and then he came down my side and, and I thought, well, I've got to do something or he won't even listen to what I'm saying. So he came to me and I grabbed his hand and I grabbed hold of the hand so he couldn't move. And, and he spoke, I can't remember what he said, it was a very emotional occasion. I grabbed the hand, but eventually it was time for him to move, so he pulled his hand away. But I was holding him so hard that the papal ring came off in my finger, and it ended up there in the palm of my hand, and the Pope looked me in the eye, and he said, I believe this belongs to the Pope. <laughs> May Allah preserve So. The journey from, from the Vatican to, to Al-Azhar, how, how did it happen? Well, I left the, uh, the, the priesthood, not because of any um, crisis of faith, not because of anything I, I didn't believe in what, in what the church taught. I left the, the priesthood because I wasn't happy. My heart inside here wasn't happy. That's why I left. And. Uh, I left very quietly and I wanted to go on holiday somewhere. 
to kind of collect my thoughts and to sort my life out, really. So, but I didn't have much money, so I looked on the internet to see where I could get a good holiday, a cheap holiday. And the cheapest holiday I could find on the internet was a week in Egypt for £119. And it had the return airfare and a week's um, board in a hotel in Sheikh on the Red Sea. You know, I knew nothing about Egypt. Uh, I thought were camels and pyramids and sand. I didn't know anything else. So I went to Egypt and, and went to Sharm el-Sheikh. And Sharm el-Sheikh is, is very much like um, Marbella or somewhere like that in Spain. It's like one of these beach resorts with bikinis and all of that sort of thing. And it just wasn't my cup of tea. So I, I got on a coach and went to Cairo and stayed in Cairo for the week. And at the end of the week, I, I got the coach back and to Sharm el-Sheikh and flew back. And that week, I spent in Cairo was probably the most extraordinary week of my life. Because before I'd gone to, to Egypt, I'd never met a Muslim. Never met a Muslim in my life. I'd seen on the television what it says about Muslims, um, but I, I'd never met one. I preached from the pulpit that we ought to be very wary of Muslims because they're intent on evil. May Allah forgive me, I, I preached from the pulpit about Islam knowing nothing about it, but I'd never met one. And I went to Cairo, and for the first time, I met ordinary Muslims. And instead of being aggressive and violent and, and intent on wickedness, I found that these people were so sweet. They were gentle and sweet and kind. And not only that, not only gentle, sweet and kind, but they were religious people in a way that I'd never met religious people before. For example, in the, the main train station in Cairo, it's called Ramses Station. And you could be in the middle, Cairo is a bustling city of 20 million people. It's very, it's very big and crowded and noisy. But all it takes is for the Adam to sound, the call to prayer. And in the middle of Ramses Station, you'd see, you'd see the crowd come and they'd go down on the ground in prayer, praying. Now, you don't see that in Glasgow Central Station, do you? You don't see it in Houston. It's something you just don't see in Britain. People, people taking religion at that, I won't say that seriously, but at, at that sort of level, immediately they hear the call to prayer, they pray. One of the things I do at, in, in Cairo is in the early morning when I wake up, um, I wait in my room. And then when it comes time for the, the dawn prayer, in the distance, in the darkness, I hear, just coming from the distance, Allah, and then a little bit further on, another one, Allah, until the whole city is full of Allahu Akbar. God is the greatest. It's the most beautiful thing. It brings tears to the eye to think of it. And I just sit there and let this crescendo of praise just drown me. And, and so Egypt touched me. And I met all sorts of extraordinary people, religious people, little boys in the street selling bananas with uh, no shoes on their feet and hungry. And they'd greet you with, Assalamu Alaikum. And, and when you'd, you'd ask them how, how they are, Alhamdulillah, they'd say. Full, just full of happiness of being Muslim. And in, in Egypt, people ask you on the street, what religion are you? 
mean, in England, in Scotland, no one asks you what religion you are on the street, but it's important to people. What, are you Christian? Are you Muslim? They want to know. So these people touched my heart very much. And I, I went back to, I traveled back to London, and I'd learned something new. I'd, I'd learned about Muslims, and I'd seen Islam, I didn't know about Islam, but I'd seen Islam. I'd seen some very beautiful mosques, but I'd seen some, some very faith-filled people. So that was the start of the journey, really. But when I, when I went back to London then, I needed a job. So I, I went back into teaching. I'd been a teacher all my life as a religious, and, and I applied for a job as head of RE in a state school. Up until then, I'd been head of RE in different Catholic schools all my life. And for the first time, I got the job, and, and for the first time, I had to teach about all religions, not just about Christianity. So I had to, like a good teacher, the night before, read up about Buddhism and about Judaism and about Islam. And I had to teach these, these kids in, in inner city London. It was a rough school, I tell you. It's the toughest school I've ever been in. But it was, it was a lovely school. The kids were very, very lovely kids, but hard. And so I would teach them about Islam. And the more I read in preparation for the lessons, and the more I got to know, the more I liked what I was reading. Until eventually it, it came to the, the, the case where I'd be talking to the kids, I'd be teaching them GCSE religion, teaching them about Islam. And we'd mention Prophet Muhammad, and, and a lump would come in my throat. And, and we'd talk about Islam, and my eyes would fill with tears talking to these kids. And I'd, I'd <coughs> cough to cover it up. And November came, and Ramadan approached. And, and the boys came to me and they said, Sir, we've got nowhere to pray. Can we pray in your classroom? Because your classroom is the only room in the school with a carpet. And your classroom is the only room in the school with a wash basin. How extraordinary. Allah works in our lives in ways we couldn't imagine. Mine was the only room with a carpet. So I said, yeah, of course you can pray in my room. So they, um, but the headmaster said, he said, well, we know these are very naughty kids. We don't know what they'll get up to. So you sit at the back. So they came every day in Ramadan. And while they were praying, I would sit at the back of the classroom marking books or preparing the next lesson. And, as the, and at first I paid no attention to what they were doing. I was just marking my books. But then the days went by and I'd look at what, what are they doing now? Oh, yeah, yeah. And what, what are they saying now? So that by the end of Ramadan, I knew all the, the I knew the way they prayed, and I knew what they were saying. Um, oh, and as well, at the start of Ramadan, I'd said to them, okay, you could use my room. And I tell you what, I will fast with you during Ramadan, because I love you when you, you love me. So I'll, I'll fast to kind of, solidarity with you. So by the end of Ramadan, I, I'd fasted with them, and, and, and I knew the prayers, and that was another step in the journey. And then, some months or two later, in, in London, the, the Regent's Park Mosque, London Central Mosque, it's a big mosque built by the King of Saudi Arabia, money from, from Saudi Arabia. And every Saturday they have what's called Islamic Circle, for, for people who want to know about Islam, 
or were people new to Islam who've just embraced Islam. So I went along to one of these talks, first of all, just for information. I'd never been in a mosque in this country. I'd seen mosques as a tourist abroad, but I'd never been in one here. So I went in and saw the mosque and talked to the people, and I liked the talk. So I went back, I kept going back each Saturday to learn more about Islam. And then one, one of the days I turned up and the speaker was a man called Yusuf Islam, Cat Stevens, the former pop singer Cat Stevens. And at the end of his talk I went to him and said, I wonder could you tell me what do people do to become Muslim? I, I don't want to be Muslim but just for information, what do they do? And he said, well, Muslims believe in one God. And I said, well, I've always believed in one God, yes, one God. And he said, and Muslims pray five times a day. I said, well, well actually, I know the prayers. I, I can say the prayers in Arabic. And he said, uh, yeah, and Muslims uh, fast during the holy month of Ramadan. I said, well, I've actually I've fasted in Ramadan. And he, he looked at me in the eye and he said, brother, who are you trying to fool? And the moment he said that, the Adan, the call to prayer, sounded. And our conversation was cut short. And we all went upstairs. And, and all of the Muslims prayed the, the sunset prayer, Salat al-Maghrib. And I sat at the back. And I watched. And I listened. And I cried. And, and as the prayer went on, I cried and cried more and more. In fact, I'm, I'm very emotional think, thinking about it now. I, I went. I'll just have some water to come now. He looked at me in the eye and he said, Brother, who are you trying to fool? And the moment he said that, the Adan, the call to prayer, sounded. And our conversation was cut short. And we all went upstairs. And, and all of the Muslims prayed. The, the sunset prayer, Salat al-Maghrib. And I sat at the back, and I watched, and I listened, and I cried. And, and as the prayer went on, I cried and cried more and more. In fact, I'm, I'm very emotional think, thinking about it now. I, I went, I'll just have some water to come now. At the end of the talk, I went to um, Brother Yusuf Islam and I said, Brother, I'd like to become Muslim. And he gave me the, the words to repeat after him. Well, there's no God but Allah. And that Muhammad is the messenger of Allah. And I, I became Muslim. And since then, I've been the happiest man alive. And I've, I found a peace in my life that I'd never known before. And now, for some extraordinary reason, people want to hear me talking about Islam. I went to Canada in December. And we, we, we'd been traveling for many hours from Cairo. And the plane approached Canada. And I was looking out of the window. Uh, the snowy wastes down below. I'm thinking to myself, why on earth does anyone want to listen to me talk about Islam? 
and, and, and I spoke to the Muslims there, Muslims in Canada, and one of the extraordinary things I learned, I'm, I'm very blessed, because Muslims in the United Kingdom now are having a hard time of things. And Muslims in different countries are, are having their own problems. And one of the blessings I have is I can see the big picture. Because I travel around and see Muslims here, and Muslims there, and Muslims all around. And it, it isn't gloomy. When you're, when you're in your own little area, and things seem to be on top of you, and think, what's the way out of this awful situation? You see no way out. But seeing the big picture, you can say, thank God, thank Allah. It, because Allah is in control. Um, so we think that we're in control. That's, that's a kind of idol worship. It's a, kind of, it's a kind of blasphemy, a heresy to think we're in charge. We look at Palestine and the terrible things that are happening in, in Palestine. And we think, oh, what is the answer to this? Where is the answer going to come from? And yet, as Muslims, we say, we say, Allahu la, Allahu la, ilaha illahu al-khayyun kayyun, la taqhudahu sinatun wallahum. Allah, there is no god but He, the living, the self-subsisting, the eternal. No slumber seizes Him, nor sleep. The God we believe in doesn't go to sleep. So when these things are happening, when these terrible things are happening, Allah isn't, he's not gone off somewhere, he's not, it's his day off. Or he's not having a nap. Allah is in control. And Allah will give victory to goodness. And wicked people, evil people will be punished. They will be. We, we, we're promised that wickedness will be punished for all eternity and good people, righteous people will be blessed and rewarded for all eternity and as Muslims we, we should always remember this that Allah is in control and Allah has the, it is his world he made it and evil doers will not succeed so when I lived in, when I lived in Rome we, we, we use the same here in, here in the UK, but in Italian they say Tutte le strade portano a Roma. All roads lead to Rome. Because the, the Roman Empire had a fantastic system of roads. Wherever you were in the empire, if you were in Madrid, or in Paris, or in Romania, you could take a straight road and it would take you to the center, the hub of the empire, which was Rome itself. All roads lead to Rome. Well, as Muslims, we, we have a variation on that saying. All roads don't lead to Rome. But as Muslims, all roads lead to Allah. All roads, everything, everything we do. Because Islam, and I discover this more and more every day, Islam is, is it's more than a religion. Islam is a complete way of life. From, from the first moments we get up in the morning and mention the name of Allah, to when we go to bed at night, we, we, I liken it, as a priest, I used to go off to do the, the, the spiritual exercises of St. Ignatius and have a week's retreat every so often. Being Muslim is like being on retreat all the time. Because Muslims think about Allah all the time, everything they do,
everything. Be before those cartoons last year about Prophet Muhammad, the Queen of Denmark made a, made a, com a comment. She, she was talking about Muslims in, in Denmark and she referred to those people for whom religion is everything. And she said it as though that was the most terrible thing in the world. Those people for whom religion is everything. There's nothing else in their life but religion. But if, if you're not Muslim, you don't understand. But as Muslims, religion is everything. It touches every aspect of life. We enter a room, Bismillah ar-Rahman rahim in the name of Allah we go into a room. We greet people, As-Salaamu Alaikum, with a greeting of peace. Peace, mind you. That's the, that's the Muslim greeting, peace. And everything we have, prayers for eating, prayers for after eating, everything in life, all roads lead to Allah. Islam needs no one's approval. Muslims are not looking for anyone's approval. But Islam and Muslims do look for, for dialogue and for tolerance and for understanding with all people of goodwill. And indeed with people of ill will, we will talk to anyone as long as they listen. One of the problems though is that the Prime Minister, the Prime Minister here in, in the UK, he came out to, to the Middle East recently, a month or so ago, and he, he got sort of half a minute on the television news because he'd come to solve the problems in, in the Middle East, like he'd solved the situation in Northern Ireland and devolution and everything else he'd solved. Well, he, he went to the Middle East and he was talking about an alliance of moderate Muslim nations. And these moderate Muslim nations would gather together and defeat extremism. Just as after, the, uh, after September the 11th, he talked about uh, wanting to, to dialogue with moderate Muslims and so on. Wonderful, wonderful. All Muslims want this. But moderate Muslims doesn't mean Muslims who will just do as they're told. That's not moderate Muslims. Muslims in this country, for, for example, um, at the moment we've said, they, they're bearing the brunt of a lot of nonsense. And a lot of it has nothing to do with Islam. There's a big debate going on amongst Muslims and amongst people who are not Muslim. British and Muslim. Which are you? Are you British or are you Muslim? And it's very interesting, you know, because no one ever asks me, am I British? They never ask me that because my skin is white. It's got nothing to do with being Muslim. They ask people that because their skin isn't white. It's a racist thing. It's not, a, it's not, an Islam, it's nothing to do with religion at all. And so Muslims want to play a full part in the society in which they live. But the problem is, and this is the big problem, there are 1.6 million Muslims in Britain. And if we lived really as Muslims, if we lived as good Muslims, how the nation would be changed. But the problem is we don't. Our faith is very lukewarm. And we do all the things that everyone else does, really. And, and we buy in to all of, the, all of the hype and all of the advertising and, and we drink Coca-Cola and we buy McDonald's and all of the silly things. And, and for example, as a priest, I, I led many a funeral. Many a funeral. I've stood here and there's a coffin in front of me. 
and it's traditional at a funeral to for someone someone would say a few words about the person who has died and never in all the time all the funerals I led I never heard anyone get up and say this man had two cars this man had lots of shoes this man took three holidays a year I never heard anyone say that this man had a really good job no didn't mention that what they did say if, if they were able to say was this man was a good husband to his wife this woman was a good mother to her children he was honest with his workmates he was kind she was compassionate these are the important things in life not shoes and going on holiday and cars and the point is if only as Muslims we could live really as Muslims how the whole of the, the nation would sit up and look and say wow this is just extraordinary because you see Islam Islam is perfect uh, and I say that without apology to anyone Islam is perfect but Muslims are not Muslims are not angels they're men and women and they're not perfect and Muslims have lots in their past and lots in their present to be ashamed of and sorry for Islam doesn't Islam is the natural religion of mankind it has existed since the beginning of time there's a, there's a beautiful belief that Muslims have as you know that at the very beginning of time Almighty Allah gathered before him on the plain of Arafat the souls of every human being who would ever exist so all the people who've gone before us now and all the people who would ever live in the future from now on Almighty Allah gathered them all before him on the plain of Arafat and he said to them I'm telling you now there is no God but me so if anyone ever says but we didn't know well the response is you did know because Muslims believe that left to their own all human beings would naturally be Muslim in fact it is our belief that all people are born Muslim all people and people become Catholic or Buddhist or Jewish by the action of their parents who make them so but Muslims believe that all people are born Muslim that's why Muslims don't say he's a convert to Islam there's an unfortunate word they say he's a revert to Islam I personally think that's a horrible word because you revert to bad things you revert to smoking or you revert to whatever but what I like to say is he, they have embraced Islam it was there in their hearts all along and they've just recognized what was there all along and they've come back it's like they're not they've not converted they've just come back to what Allah has wanted for them since the beginning of time and if, if only we could live that faith that we've been giving of course on every year during the, the Hajj pilgrimage we see on the day of Arafat all the pilgrims standing there begging and crying and pleading with Almighty Allah that their sins the sins of their lives be forgiven and on, on the last day we believe that everyone will appear on his own on her own bef naked before Allah and will be asked to give an account of how they've lived their lives and inshallah each one of us will be able to give a good account of, of how we've lived our lives 
let, let me just say what that I'm, I'm really not feeling too good, so I'll, I'll give you one example of something else. When, when Princess Diana died in this country, I, I was a priest at the time, and it was an amazing week, an amazing week to be a clergyman, because British people, as you know, they don't wear their hearts on their sleeves. They don't talk about religion. We're brought up, aren't we, to believe that you don't talk about religion or politics at the dinner table. You don't talk about it. Um, in, in, in Egypt, for example, where, where I live in Egypt, religion is in people's blood. As a, little, as a little kid, you'd be brought up in school singing songs about God. And you'll hear the name of Allah five times a day as you hear the Adan in the street. You'll see Allah mentioned on the TV all the time. In all the greetings, you greet everyone. Assalamu alaikum. God is mentioned all the time. You could live in this country. You never hear the name of God ever. Ever. Now that week when, when the princess died, people were weeping in the streets. And I, I remember standing on South Kensington Underground Station and people were going up and hugging each other. Well, British people don't do that. They don't hug strangers. And they were smiling. How are you, love? How are you coping? It was an amazing week. Businessmen were coming out of their offices at lunchtime with a single rose and taking it to Kensington Palace Gardens and, and, and laying it at the, at the gates. And, and, and on the day of the funeral, and I went, I went actually, because I like Diana too. And I went to Hyde Park and I stood on the, you know, the gun carriage came along the, the path with the coffin on and the, and the white lilies. And people were shouting out, Diana, we love you. They'd never met her. She's our friend. We love her. They'd never met her at all. They didn't know anything about her, except what the press had told them. But the important thing, I, I thought that week, I, I reflected very deeply on what was happening that week. Because there was an extraordinary outpouring of spirituality that week. Because British people, all people, but British people, no matter how much you suppress what's in there, it's still there, it'll find a way out eventually. And, and all people have there in their hearts a yearning, a longing for Allah, St. Augustine. For the Catholics in the audience, St. Augustine used to say, You have made us a Lord for yourself, and our hearts will find no rest until they rest in you. All of us are yearning for Almighty Allah, and we find no happiness in life until we find Him. Islam means submission. It also comes from an Arabic word meaning peace as well. It comes from the same word that salam comes from peace. But submission. And when we submit, to the will of Allah in our lives, then we find happiness. Prophet, Prophet Yunus, uh, Job, uh, Jonah, Jonah. When, when Jonah was swallowed by the whale after all the troubles and tribulations he'd gone through, he, he eventually cried out, La ilaha illa inta, there's no God but you. And when he admitted that, his life changed. And he was able to go on and do great things and, and find happiness in his life. Now I think what happened in that week of Princess Diana's death was people weren't so much mourning the death of a princess. She was glamorous, she was beautiful. She, tragedy had touched her life, her marriage and so on. But I think what people were, were mourning was the death of goodness itself. They were mourning the death of spiritual values that they want in their society. 
but they're not allowed to have. They were mourning the fact that honesty and integrity and goodness had gone from our, from our lives. Those models, we don't see models like that. We see cynicism and jealousy and bitterness and anger and shouting from our leaders, not honesty and integrity and goodness and kindness. And many people that week, and I'm kind of finishing now, many people that week asked a lot of questions about God. Why, God, did you allow Princess Diana to die? She was young and beautiful. Why did you let her die? Why, why God, do you let little children die of cancer? Why, why do you allow tsunamis to kill so many people just in one go like that? People were asking these questions, deep, deep questions. And I finished the book, I'm going to finish with a quotation from the book, with talking about that little boy, the little boy selling bananas or cleaning shoes in the street. I, in the book I call him Mohammed or Hassan or Ali or something like that. And let me just finish by reading what, what we say there. So, the questions are, why does God allow these things to happen? Our young boy knows the answer to all those questions about life's meaning. Islam has taught him. There's no distinction for him between religion and life. He's neither weird, nor an extremist, nor a fanatic. He's just a perfectly ordinary young man trying to earn enough money to feed himself and his family. Does praying make him a fanatic, he asks? Does trying to help others less fortunate than him make him weird? Does dreaming about going on a once-in-a-lifetime pilgrimage to extremist? We often fear that which we don't understand. Islam is much understood in today's world. If our only knowledge of Islam comes from distorted news headlines, we're sure to live forever in fear of what we don't really know. If we can begin to see Islam through the eyes of Muslims themselves, like our young shoeshine boy, we might begin to understand. Muslims remain bewildered that their religion is not only misunderstood, but vilified as a religion of fanatics. Our young boy Ali or Hassan or Muhammad knows that Islam is the religion of peace. Misunderstood by many who are not Muslim, he'll carry on through the harsh realities of life, trying his best to be a good person. Several times a day he will declare his belief in the oneness of Allah and that Muhammad is his messenger. He will go quickly to pray when he hears Allahu Akbar from the mosque. He will pay zakat if ever he has enough money to pay it. But he'll always think of those even less better off than he. He looked forward all year to the coming of Ramadan when he'll fast with all his heart and soul during daylight hours. And it will be his life's dream to go on pilgrimage to Mecca in response to the call of Almighty Allah. His hope and his prayer will be that when his time on earth is over, he will look back on a life well lived. He has lived the secret according to the principles of Islam. Now he will hope to hear these words of the Holy Quran 
as if Allah were addressing them to him alone. But are thou soul at peace? Return unto thy Lord, content in his good pleasure. Enter thou among my servants, enter thou my God. Visit us at ArcDocScore or check out the Arc Media app.